So uh, many of you hear us talk about this, and uh, if you're here for the first time, you'll hear it for the first time. Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations. Uh, in each of the congregations, though, we have a local uh, lead pastor who's a primary communicator, a local team of pastors and staff, and local elders. Uh, but we also have a lead team that oversees all of the 10 congregations of redemption all over Arizona, and we have a leader of that lead team. The lead pastor of all of Redemption Church is Tyler Johnson. You've probably heard me mention him, and on occasion, I, I always hope twice a year, we like to bring Tyler in and have him preach to us so that we're reminded of the fact that not only is it Redemption Arcadia, but it's also Redemption Arizona, that we're part of something, a movement that's even bigger than we are. And so that's one reason that, why we have Tyler here today, but also I wanted him to come today in particular uh, our last full day in this property, uh, if you want to call it that, because Tyler, more than just about anybody, I know there's a few people out here maybe who are back from the Praxis days, but Tyler has been here as long as almost anybody else. Uh, he, he, uh, when, when Redemption Church came about five and a half years ago, he was the lead pastor then, and so he has a history here at this property and with this congregation, and in fact, you were the interim pastor here for six months about five years ago. And so uh, just so that you know who we're talking about when we talk about this mystical, mysterious man called Tyler Johnson, please welcome Tyler for today's message. Thank you. So we are spending a summer in the Psalms across redemption. Each congregation uh, has the flexibility and freedom to do different Psalms. You all have looked at Psalm 1, Psalm 2, last week Psalm 118. Today we're going to be in Psalm 22. So if you'd open up your Bibles to Psalm 22 and or your apps or you can, if you have a way to get online on your phone, just type in Psalm 22 into Google and it will get you there. As you turn there, we're going to pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, even in the times it doesn't feel like we're experiencing any goodness at all. Father, we ask you to meet us this morning. You tell us that your word will come to us in very personal fashion, um, that your word is living and it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword that it will divide bone from marrow, and that it will judge each of our thoughts and intentions and will show our hearts and make them lay bare. Father, you tell us that your word will not return void. I pray that that's true for all of us today. God, meet us here in Christ's name. Amen. It's said often in the church, God is good, and the congregation responds, all the time, and all the time, God is good. It could equally and just as truthfully be said, life is hard all the time, and all the time, life is hard. The reason the statement, God is good all the time, is so powerful is certainly not the plastic fake smiles that too often come out of many people uh, that may inhibit the four walls of a church. The power of that statement is to say God is good all the time when every human being that's lived even a day in this life knows how hard life is. That if that statement said sincerely that God is good all the time, a real human would have to say, really? Like, is he really good all the time? Because we don't experience that as so. 
The psalmists confirm your concerns. The psalmists confirm all throughout the psalms that life is really hard, it's deeply sorrowful, and it's really confusing. Just life for all of us. John Calvin, when he was speaking of the psalms, said the psalms are such a book that in fact we could say very specifically that the psalms are the textbook of the human soul. The center point, he said, of biblical psychology. Now you may go, what does that mean? The textbook of the human soul, the centerpiece of biblical psychology. He says the psalms testify to real life. The psalms teach us as human beings how to relate to God in the midst of real life. We say in Redemption Church across all the congregations, hopefully very often, all of life is all for Jesus. We want to live an all of life faith, but we also want to live a real life faith. And the challenge with our culture and the challenge of our churches within culture is many of us, far too many of us, have been given and are living out of an over-sanitized Christian faith. Therefore, an over-sanitized way we relate to God, which is prayer, and we wonder why we struggle in prayer, and I would submit to you, most of us in this room don't know what it is to really pray because you think it has to be really clean. And in the end, it doesn't feel really real. It doesn't feel very earthed, if you will. I have a theologian I like a lot. He's quite heady. His name's Peter Lightheart, and he says this. His quote will be on the screen. The Psalms are also a textbook of prayer. Prayer, just so all of you know, regardless of where you all stand, prayer is just relating to God, which is what the Bible says humanity was made for, is to be in communion with God. Our communion always necessitates communication. That communication and communion is called prayer. The Psalms are a textbook of prayer frequently employing language that is unnerving in its vehemence. Here's what he's saying. It's not clean. It's not simple. In fact, it's unnerving. The Psalms will employ language at times that you go, is that actually in the Bible? Like, can you actually say that to God? It feels uncomfortable. That's what he means by unnerving. This word vehemence is it's intense. It's direct. Psalms indicate that an overwhelming desire for justice should animate our prayers. Here's what he's saying there, that we should be going, this is not right. This doesn't feel right. Make it right. That's what he's saying. An overwhelming desire for justice should animate our prayers, that we should express our disappointments with honesty. Stop and look at that for a minute and maybe ask ourselves the question, are we honest with God? That prayer is not quiet time, but a time of wrestling and passion. I'm telling you, there's one verse in the Bible that may come up with the idea of quiet time, but truth be told, everything else in the Bible, and even that verse, truth be told, is not quiet. It's wrestling time. It's time of passion. Then he says this, praying the Psalms makes the biblical story and biblical language a part of us, that we can actually live in the real world. It knits the biblical story and biblical language into the fabric of our flesh. By flesh, he doesn't mean sin. He means who we really are. The Psalms help us do that. Now, if you're in this room, even as an unbeliever, or you're in this room as a believer, you should be at this point going, 
I should probably look at the Psalms. These at least sound interesting. Well, Psalm 22 is absolutely no exception to this vehemence, this honesty, this wrestling, this passion. And if we take this seriously, we have an opportunity to pray really like human beings that really encounter God in a really powerful way. Psalm 22 is a really complex, dark plea for help. And we're going to see here how to pray. My hope is that we walk out with a little bit more of an understanding of how to pray. And we're going to learn this. You, if you're going to really pray the way God intends you to pray, you've got to learn to pray in protest. You've got to learn to pray in demand, making demands of God. And then you've got to pray in paradoxical praise. Protest, demand, paradoxical praise. So let's get at this. Praying in protest. True prayer has substantial components of complaint, lament, and protest. Well, what do you mean, Tyler? Well, okay, just think about what protest means. If I just say the word protest, you think about a collective protest. When Governor Doug Ducey, who's the governor of the state of Arizona, for those of you who aren't into, into state politics, which you should at least know who your governor is, um, <laughs> Doug Ducey, when he gets a bunch of bills on his desk, the moment those bills hit his desk, there will be collections of people who gather at the Capitol to protest. And essentially what they're saying is, how long, Governor Ducey? And then they'll say things like, it's been too long. No longer. They protest. I right now am vehemently protesting the fact that the University of Arizona is in the finals of the College World Series. It absolutely drives me insane. They are not that good. They're not as good as, they aren't. I mean, you follow the whole year, they're not that good. And I am protesting God, like how long are you gonna allow this to happen? How long are you gonna allow our enemies to be elevated over us? This is disgusting. We know what protest is. The question is, are we really comfortable protesting God? Well, the psalmist is. The psalmist in verse one and two says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God, I cry by day, you don't answer. And by night, and yet I still find no rest. The psalmists all throughout the psalms, and certainly here, say things to God that sound almost blasphemous, sacrilegious. Can you really say that to God? What the psalmist is doing is coming before God in all the realness of who they are and saying very clearly, God, everything in my life points to the fact that you have forsaken me. In Psalm 13, the psalmist speaks in such a way that if you have forsaken me, you have turned your face away from me. This idea of forsaking is not passive. The idea of hiding from someone and turning away from them is not passive, it's active. The psalmist is going, how long, Lord? My God, my God, why have you actively turned away from me? Why do I actively cry out and you shut your ears? You put your fingers in your ear holes and you don't listen. I plead to you by day, you don't listen. I plead to you at night when I'm just trying to rest, when I want to find sleep, when I want my body to shut down, and you plug your ears to me. The psalmist is very clearly bringing about 
his protest to God. It is very clear that the psalmist is coming before God in a very desperate situation and a very urgent situation. He then says this in verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now immediately, you have a moment where you first may go, okay, if you keep reading, you go, is the psalmist schizophrenic? Like, he goes from cursing God, and now he goes to, yet you are like this. And he almost like he's preaching. Now there's two ways to look at this, and I think it's probably a little bit of both. One way to look at this is that the psalmist is bringing what he feels, but then immediately reminding himself about what's true of God based upon what he's done in the past. So look at what he says. Yet you, God, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now, I think all of that's true. And this psalmist knows that. He's been taught the truth about God. He knows what God did for the forefathers coming out of Egypt. He knows that, and in some way, he is reminding himself of that, maybe to give himself a little bit of comfort. But if I'm reading this as a real human being, and I'm reading it consistently with the Psalms, I think this reads more like this. Yet you're holy, God. You're sitting on cushions in the praises of your people. Our forefathers cried to you and you delivered them. They needed rescue and you rescued them. Then verse 6, but I'm just a worm and you leave me here to be stomped on. I think the psalmist is continuing his complaint. He's stating true things, maybe to give himself some footing, but the minute he may be trying to remind himself, he's like, why did you do it for them and you're not doing it for me? That sounds like my kids, right? You gave it to Brayden. You did it for her. Why aren't you doing it for me? And you know what I feel like when my kids do that? Right? Like I just want to, listen, punk, right? But they're being real. They're being honest. And if we're going to be honest with God, there's these moments where, yes, we have to remember in the past, but we also have to do something what we feel when we remind ourselves of the past. We remind ourselves in the past, and everything within you go, yeah, but you're not rescuing me right now. Then say it. Then say that to God. But you're not rescuing me right now. He goes on. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So right now, the psalmist begins to speak to why he feels like God's forsaken him. And right away, he's speaking about the inhumanity of humanity. Right? Be real. You've experienced this. At the very least, you've watched it be done. People treating others like trash. Right? If you're a parent, you say this to your kids at times. Like, don't treat each other like trash. What are you saying? Why does that phrase come up and so many human beings use it? Because humans don't treat humans like humans. They treat them like trash. Just open up an app and go through your news feed or watch the news. There are people walking into innocent environments with semi-automatic weapons and mowing people down right now. Across the world, there's people beheading folks that they don't like. 
And we go, that is ridiculously dehumanizing. And if we're going to pray the way of the Psalms, we must protest God for that. How long, Lord? Why aren't you doing anything about this, God? But you must never, okay? And when I say you, look at me. I'm talking to you as an individual. You must never go, oh, the evil that's over there. And forget the words of Jesus who says, you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've committed murder already. That those very people that are there that you say, I hate, or the way in which Jesus talks about words and the author of the Proverbs talks about words, that the words that come out of your mouth are either poison or fruit. Your words can be a sword that fundamentally stabs somebody and wounds them to points that it takes years and maybe never can they recover from. We treat each other like trash and we murder each other literally and we murder each other literally with our words and the way we treat other people. Whatever way the abuse comes about, whether it's physical abuse, whether it's emotional abuse, whether it's spiritual abuse or it's verbal abuse, folks, it is treating humans like trash and not like humans. This is why the psalmist begins to go on through the psalm and he'll use these language of animals. Many bulls encompass me, verse 12. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. Why is he using animal imagery? He's using animal imagery because he's trying to accentuate the fact that what's happening is not human. What David, the psalmist here, is feeling is not human. He's living in inhumane circumstances, experiencing inhumane things at the hands of people who are acting like humans in the way they relate to other people. This is where, if you're going to pray and protest, you have to also learn how to articulate what you're feeling and what you're experiencing, both literally and metaphorically. So literally, God, I'm so sad. Metaphorically, God, I feel like I'm drowning and I can't get a breath. Literally, God, my body is shaking. Metaphorically, I feel like there's a two-ton weight upon me and I can't get it off. Literally, God, I can't sleep tonight. Maybe metaphorically, maybe literally, God, I'm insane. This is exactly what the psalmist is doing, to bring his protest to God. Why have you forsaken me? I feel forsaken. It feels like you don't hear me because of this. Because enemies surround me at every time, because their mouths are huge and they're taking their huge fangs and sinking them into my body. He then begins to articulate things that I would argue are literal. He speaks about the entirety of his body. Not until the past couple years did I ever um, fully understand how stress can have an effect on your physical body. The fact that your joints begin to hurt in ways there's no way somebody in their late 30s should have joints hurting this bad. And then going into medical environments and going, something is wrong with me. And they're like, test one, nothing's wrong. Test two, nothing's wrong. Test three, nothing wrong. I'm not doing test four, it costs too much, right? Like, but at the end of the day, you're like, am I insane? 
because I physically feel this. And the psalmist speaks to this. If you look through, he feels it in his bones. His heart is melting away within him. His breast, his mouth is so dry, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Go look, a simple Google search about what anxiety does to the body. And one of the things are a dryness of mouth in such a way that your tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth. Tongue, jaws, hands, feet. These are real experiences that real humans have, that you have, that I have to varying levels. Sleepless nights. The Psalms talk about that what these experiences are is our enemies surrounding us. It'll speak in different ways as adversaries, opponents, oppressors. Now, we know with certain of the psalmists, like David in particular, at times he's fleeing Saul, at other times he's fleeing Absalom, and these things are real. But many of the other psalmists, we don't have a direct answer. The fear is a fear of death. Here in Psalm 22, you've placed me in the dust of death. My enemies surround me. And I am convinced the reason many times the enemy, the opponent, the adversary, the oppressor isn't specifically articulated is because God knew he was making this the prayer book for his people. And all of our experiences are not monolithic. They're not all the same. For some of you, the enemy is a literal family member, a mother or a father. Or it's a mother and father who were never around and should have been around. Or it's a mother and father who, when they were around, you wish they weren't around. Right now, it could be literally one of those, or it could be a child that you so long to raise a child that would look like this and that you would be happy, but the children are the greatest sense of your sorrow. For some of you, it is literally your physical ailing body and diseases that you're experiencing or the enemy that surrounds you that you can't get away from. For others of you, it is debilitating anxiety. For others of you, it is depression. Let me say to those of you who experience anxiety and depression and you think, I must not be that spiritual. Well, I would say to you, then, then the psalmist must not, must not be either, which is not true. Because this David who pens this psalm is the man God says was a man after my own heart, and he was deeply depressed with debilitating anxiety. And at times, you're like, is he schizophrenic? Like, what in the world? That's the real human experience. But the enemies are multicolored, they're multifaceted, but the one thing that's true, that's true of all of us, is we all experience trouble. It's been said by one Hebrew Jewish scholar. He said, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. <laughs> the Psalms press us in. Psalm 22 presses us into our neediness. But when we see that, we have to acknowledge that many of us flee, ignore, stick our head in the sands about neediness because our culture says being needy is bad. But let me tell you something. You cannot read the Bible. You cannot follow Jesus without understanding need and weakness is the fundamental soil in which biblical, God-centered, Christ-following spirituality is birthed out of and sustains itself out of your acknowledging and living in and pressing into your need and your weakness. The false gods of this culture, the false gods of comfort, convenience, safety, and security, and self-sufficiency 
are demonic. They're absolutely demonic. If God's the one who made it all and he made us all by him and for him, we are creatures, not the creator. The essence of sin, Romans says, is when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we begin to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Namely, maybe most significantly, we worship the created thing of ourself when we try to be self-sufficient. You weren't made to be self-sufficient. You were made to be in dependence upon God and in dependence upon other people. That's foundationally true to walking with God and the Psalms press us into, deeply into, that truth. Now, we pray, if we're going to pray honestly, we've got to pray in protest. Then we've got to pray in demand. We've got to pray in demand. Now, again, that's a word that we go, demand? Like, can we actually do that? I have four kids. I told you this. A 10-year-old boy, an 8-year-old boy, a 5-year-old girl, and a 4-year-old girl. And my kids right now love the show American Ninja Warrior. Love it. So the other night, they're sitting there telling me, Dad, turn on American Ninja Warrior. So we turn on the TV, and I'm like, it's not on. Now, there's a fundamental difference between my generation and my kids' generation. When I wanted to watch something and my parents said, it isn't on, it wasn't on, right? <laughs> but my kids go, turn it on. It's not on. Open your computer and turn it on, right? They begin to make demands of me. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, just type it into Google, American Ninja Warrior full episode, Vroom. There it comes, like 40 of them, American Ninja. I'm like, okay, so I push play and they begin to watch it. So after they watch it, or I should actually say in the midst of watching it, now they start laying mattresses on the floor and they start sprinting through the house. They knock against a wall and then they'll jump off a mattress and jump on a couch. So the boys do it, they kind of fall, they're laughing. Well, now the five-year-old girl's running, she's running, she jumps on the mattress, jumps on the couch and then falls and her bottom sticks right between the couch and the window and she looks like a dead cow. Like her hands are in the air, her feet are in the air and then she says, Dad, get me now! <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, let me wait a minute. This is kind of funny. I kind of, this is, right? Get me now. So I walk over and get her. The crazy thing about girls being different than boys is girls will do it like they just barely fall off the couch. Save me! Right? And I'm like, just get up, right? Like, just push yourself up. Let your knees fall to the ground. But there's something of a sentiment within little girls, and then they'll say, you're my prince. I'm the princess. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Get up, right? But they just say it. And there's something in a little girl that testifies to the truth of human experience that we know, therefore, we want to be saved. We want to be rescued. But they say, save me. Dad, get me now. The psalmist does the very same thing. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me. Do not be far off, verse 19. Come quickly to my aid, verse 19. These are imperatives, commands upon God, demands upon God. Deliver my soul. They're not, the psalmist is not sitting here praying to God going, Lord, if you so will, if you think it's best, they're like, get me now. Deliver my soul, deliver my life, save me. That's the essence 
of the whole demands of God is a demand, it's a plea for help, but the demands are save me. And folks, we hear the word salvation a lot as Christians, and we think, oh, there was a moment and God saved me. But the truth of a Christian is the one who understands that I need salvation moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, and the Savior who's the Savior of my soul eternally is the only one who can save me now. So protest to him what you need, articulate very specifically and metaphorically what you need, and then demand of him to save you. Now, let me step back one more moment and tell you something in the midst of this. I said the Psalms are meant to press us into our neediness. That means we've got to acknowledge our need, which means we have to acknowledge pain. And I'm going to say it a different way. Our culture runs from pain at every possible level. I want to get in shape. Well, then you're going to have to painfully eat different. Nah. Right? You're going to have to work out and may cause a little pain. Nah. Right? The better thing for your health and your recovery is to not continue to pop the pills like you do. Experience it for a little bit. Marriage. We get married. We experience pain. I'm gone. I don't like this. I need to move out from my family. There's a psychologist named Mary Piffer, and she says this. Her culture doesn't handle suffering very well. In fact, she contends that almost all of the, listen to this, almost all of the craziness in the world comes from running from pain. Why does running from pain make us crazy? Here's a simple answer. Because where do you go to avoid it, right? I'm going to run away from pain to the left it's there. I'm going to run away from pain to the right. It's there. I'm going to go up. It's there. I'm going to go down. It's there. I'm going to try to find myself and go inside. And as you go inside, you're like, oh my Lord, there's more pain there than anywhere I've ever experienced. So what's the answer to that? The answer in our world of sin where pain is a reality, hardship is truth, sorrow is everywhere is that you would expect pain and then you would embrace pain. I didn't say like pain, but you embrace it because what happens when you expect it and you embrace it is all of a sudden you look outside of yourself and you go, I need something outside of me, outside of any other human being, and I'm like, help. Who's that? God. God. We have to expect and embrace pain. And if we don't, there's catastrophic circumstances. If you reject pain, you will never know the biblical idea that's all over the Bible about lament. Lament is complaining to God. It's expressing your sorrow. What you'll try to do is you'll try to run from pain, you'll avoid pain, and you'll deny pain. If we run from pain, avoid pain, and deny pain, there's three major, major problems. The first one is it's a problem for you. You'll never be a real human being. What you'll turn yourself into when you stick your head in the ground trying to avoid pain, trying to run from pain and denying pain, is you deny your humanity. You become a fake person 
plastic lie to yourself. You try to act stronger than you really are. And that leads to the second problem. Fake people cannot have real relationships. It's impossible. Fake people will not have, cannot have real relationships. So the really strong, self-sufficient people are fake, and those people have horrible relationships. They have horrible marriages. They don't experience. What's the power that's found in relationship? This word that's common now, which I would agree with, is vulnerability. What does the word vulnerability mean? Humanity. Be a real human being to one another. Allow somebody to weep with you when you're weeping. Allow somebody to rejoice with you when you're rejoicing. Allow yourself to say, I need you. That's where true relationships built. That's where true communities built. And do you know this? All of the modern science that's coming out is kind of right now centered on neuroscience, that's brain science. And do you know right now everything from addictions to family childhood trauma and so on and so on is being said one of the greatest places of healing is in true authentic community true authentic relationship. So if I try to avoid pain, stick my head in the ground, and it affects community, then it's affecting the very place I can receive my healing. And the last place, which is the place of ultimate healing, it will affect. If you avoid pain, you run from it, you act like it doesn't exist, you have no need for God who is the essence place of us being locked into the place of ultimate healing, restoration, reorientation, redemption, is in God. He's the one the Bible says you were made for. So if you deny your humanity, you therefore deny community, and you deny God, you're in a bad spot, folks. And the only way we get out of that is to pray God in a very real way, rehumanize me, which means I'm just going to come to you as a human being. I'm going to protest you. I'm going to make demands upon you. And then it ends this way. It ends in paradoxical praise. What do I mean by that? Praying in paradoxical praise. Life is so confusing and so hard, and yet we're called to praise God. Paradox literally means absurd, like contradictory. Paradoxical praise, or you could call it paradoxical hope, absurd hope, is a little like a Cubs fan. <laughs> okay, like you had all of these years, people stayed Cubs fans and they continued to fill the seats at Wrigley Field and in spring training. And you're like, really? Like, you guys have stunk for like decades and somehow you have a hope, but yeah, sometime it's coming. Well, just the last couple of years, it's came to the Cubs. Like, this hope that they hoped for, that they held on to, has been brought. It's emerged in some sub seemingly substantial ways. We'll see if the curse still exists. <laughs> right? But that's an earthly hope. Like, I'm holding on to hope. The biblical hope is a certain hope. Cubs fans were never certain. They were wishing. Biblical hope is certain hope. There's this moment in verse 21 that is so profound. He says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then the whole tone of the psalm changes. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
Okay, if you're reading the psalm slowly enough to see what just happened, you have to go, what in the world is that? Either this guy is really more nuts than I thought he was or something happened. So what could have happened right there? Because when he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, the wild oxen and the imagery of the animals is the problems, the sorrow, the pain, the anxiety, the depression, the fear that's surrounding him. And somehow he's saying to God, you've met me me in the midst of the mess. You're about to sing, sing a song right after this message. And the title of it is Condescending Love. Who God is over and over and over again in the Bible and over and over again in history and over and over again in our lives is that he meets us, condescends to come into our lives in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the depression, in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the horror, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the pain. Now, so what did this literally look like? Did he literally save the psalmist? Maybe. But what's actually happening here? Maybe he saved him. I tend to think maybe in a moment, maybe he made a left turn and he lost his enemies. That's true. God saves us in moments like that. Something else could be happening here. One could be that the psalmist is believing. Like Jesus said in the book of Mark, that if you pray and you believe that it will be answered, it will be. He never says when it will be, right? He never even says that it will be in this lifetime, but he says you believe and it will be answered. Maybe there's a moment where belief, the prayer of faith like James talks about, hits David and he goes, you've rescued me, even though he hadn't been physically rescued. Or David is looking with hope, and I think it's some of all of these, hope that in the end, God is the savior, the ultimate one. He is the one who fixes it. And that seems to be really true because David then begins to go off and say, I'm going to preach it to the brothers. I'm going to say it to everybody that's in the midst of the congregation. You who fear Lord, praise him. Stand in awe of him. For he has not despised the afflicted. He's met the afflicted in the midst of their affliction. From you comes praise in the great congregation, vows. Then he begins to say the afflicted will eat. They'll feast. He then says the prosperous will feast, the poor will feast, peoples of all kinds of different cultures will come together. The poor won't be separated from the rich, the Sudanese won't be separated from the Nigerian, the American won't be separated from the Mexican. But that this whole moment of coming together, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship before him. Posterity, verse 3. 30 shall serve him it shall be told to the lord in the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it this is a paradoxical praise that clearly something happened that gave david hope now listen to this paul tells us in romans chapter 5 that Even more than this, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Really? Why? Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will never put us to shame. What ultimately provides hope? Don't just give me the Sunday school answer. Let me just color this for you for a minute. 
When I read the first line of this psalm, the first two verses, and I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did you think of? Jesus, where? On the cross. If you've ever wondered what Jesus was thinking when he was on the cross, it's this psalm. This is what Jews did. They would recite the first verse of a psalm, and they would think through the whole entire thing. The logic of this psalm is that I've been forsaken, I'm going down into death, I'm experiencing death, and then I'm finding a resurrection. He's reminding himself on the cross the whole time, I have come in to this mess, which, folks, is our mess. I am going to die. God, you are going to forsake me, but I will find my resurrection so that they may be able to live in the midst of their mess and say, even though I'm afflicted and forsaken, I'm not afflicted and I'm not forsaken. Even in the midst where I feel like God is away from me, he's never away from me. He promises to never leave me, to never forsake me. Even when they feel like they have lost, they may proclaim, we have won because he has done it, as the psalmist ends. To a nation yet unborn, that's us, folks, We were not even born. Our country wasn't even registered. That a day would come because he has done it. Because Jesus said, it is finished. That we would be able to proclaim his praise in the midst of the congregation. Every week at all redemption congregations, we have a moment where we participate together in this congregation together, in all our congregations together, and together with the history of the church where we realize the centerpiece of all of history is found in his body and his blood broken for us. And we proclaim as we participate in him, in his body and in his blood, as we participate in him, we proclaim, the Bible says, his death until he comes. Now, many of us are coming in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of depression and anxiety to come to this moment to ever be remembered, to ever remember he is coming back and he's been raised from the dead so that we may proclaim praise, even if it's really paradoxical. There will be deacons and people to pray that are up here. If you need prayer, let us pray for you in the midst of whatever sorrowful situation you're going through and let us participate together. Father, we love you. Thank you, thank you for how you meet us in the midst of real world circumstances, in the midst of our real life pain. God, don't let us lie to ourselves and lie to you. God, we're in trouble and we need you. We're in trouble all the time and we need you all the time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.